Good morning. I am Pastor Mike. Before we get to the message, I want to make a couple shout-outs. First of all, I want to shout-out one Jacob Bolin. He is a youth here that goes to our church who made that video. Currently serving with the light booth. He likes to hide, so he hates this right now. But if you guys give him a round of applause. He is one of the many, or I guess few, I don't know, one of the few youths at our church who serve so faithfully here on Sunday, and it is awesome to see kids of his age step into ministry work like that. Second, I want to shout out everyone who stayed after church last Sunday to put up these Christmas decorations, because they look awesome. I got the vibe. I'm not even a Christmas guy, and I got the vibes. I got the chill. (laughs) See what I did there? Anyway. And lastly, and I didn't tell her that we're going to do this, I want to shout out our full-time Ugandan ministry, who I didn't even know was coming to church this Sunday, but they're here in the States for how long? For about six weeks. If you could stand up, Katie. Katie. And her two lovely children. I only see one of them. But her and Cody Fox, for those of you who don't know, are owners here at this church. And how long ago did you move? Eight years. Eight years ago. They moved to Uganda to work at a school and an orphanage and help with kids with special needs, in particular with Katie's case. And they do great ministry work over there, and they are awesome, awesome people. If you get a chance, say hey to them when you see them here in town. Um, also, that is a great plug, because net, oh, sorry, December the 11th, which is a Sunday, after the gathering, we will have a Uganda trip interest meeting for our mission trip Next June or July, we're still trying to lock in those dates. So if you are interested in going to see the work that Katie and Cody do over there and helping out, stay after church Sunday, December the 11th, and we will get you all the details on when that trip is going to take place and what we will be doing. Amen? Amen. Amen. And with that, let's turn to the message. And that is today, we kick off Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas where we await and reflect upon what Jesus Christ's arrival means to us and our world. This time of anticipation oriented around four major themes, hope, joy, peace, and love, which for four weeks, the church explores through the reading of scripture, the lighting of these Advent candles, which symbolize the light that Jesus brought into our often dark world, and by reflecting on how Jesus Christ might reorient how we understand these themes for us today in 2022. And this week, we begin with our first Advent theme, which is hope. And to start, I want to take a hard turn and talk about the most fun movie archetype ever, which is the heist movie. Who here loves heist movies? Am I the only one? Come on, y'all. Who here loves heist movies? Oh my gosh. Boo! But y'all know the deal. A group of misfits team up to steal something priceless via a ridiculously complex and convoluted plan that requires a bazillion things to go just as they predicted, which it always seems to do, right? Obviously, some of my favorites, obviously, the classic, Ocean's Eleven. Woo, what a handsome crew of people is in this movie. Got Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Matt Damon, Bernie Mac, Don Cheadle, and the handsome Gray Fox mastermind himself, George Clooney. I, yeah, see, someone loves ice movies. I adore this flick. But at the same time, do y'all realize how ridiculous the plot at the center of this movie is? 
A dude who violates his parole, that's the starting point, gets a crew of very handsome known thieves together to rob the Bellagio Mirage MGM casinos by creating an exact replica of their basements. They then get someone kidnapped and put in the exact right place in said basement and then fake a SWAT team raid on top of many other shenanigans, all to eventually get the prize. And does it work? Of course it works. But is it absurd? Very absurd. Or another one of my favorites. How about this one? Who here has seen this one? Anyone here seen Logan Lucky? If you like more oddball movies, this is about as odd as it gets. And this one, a hilarious crew of the dumbest redneck criminals ever rob a NASCAR race in a heist that they dub Ocean 7-Eleven. <laughs> it is awesome. Probably rated R. I did not tell you to go watch it. And then finally, and this is my personal favorite, a little-known film, Inside Man. This is Spike Lee's heist masterpiece and is a bank robbery movie centered around this cat and mouse chase between Clive Owens and the goat, the greatest of all time. Who is it? Denzel Washington, my man. This movie rules. And if you haven't seen it, I'm not even going to tell you the plot because I don't want to spoil it. This movie is a banger. But really, all these movies rule. I mean, these heist movies, what they do is so fun. They get us rooting for heists that clearly would not succeed in reality. But at the same time, if we are willing to suspend our disbelief, to get over how ridiculous their complexity is, they are just a thrill ride. They are one of the most entertaining types of movies that exist. And you're probably wondering at this point, what does this have to do with anything? Well, this came to mind this week because, quite frankly, I believe that many of us have a vision of hope that looks a lot like these movies. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, whether we realize it or not, we all have an internal story about how to make our lives better, or dare I say, perfect, from which we form these things called expectations. Who has some of those? These things that we determine must happen for that story that we are telling ourselves to be fulfilled. Expectations we then plan around and use to direct our actions and our schemes as we try to bring that story to its fruition. Because we think that's what needs to happen for us to be all right. Anyone been there? Yeah, this weekend, amen. And this doesn't sound horrible or even really that unhealthy. Well, that is until we conflate set expectations being realized with our hope. Because you see, when that happens, things start to go sideways in a hurry. Why? Well, what I would posit to you is this, because then my capacity to have hope becomes grounded in two things, which are my capacity to control, to ensure that people, circumstances, and outcomes meet my expectations and predictions. And then second, it gets grounded in my ability to get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, which is right now. Which means that my hope becomes grounded in an unreality. Because spoiler alert, this isn't a heist movie, and we don't control anything outside of ourselves when you boil it down to the facts. You see, 
That's what brought these movies to mind. Because be honest, how many of us, when we say that we hope for something, what we really mean is that we've created a desired path for our lives in a convoluted plan built upon a bazillion expectations that must go exactly right for that plan to get realized. Anybody else? If I get the perfect job, enough money, or security, relationship, family, friends, degree, car, house, vacation, level of health, if, 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 well, then I'll be all right. Well, then I'll be happy, safe, content, peaceful, grateful, complete. Am I the only one? But y'all, that is dangerous ground to build hope upon. Because when just one of those bazillion expectations does not go as you planned, what happens? The whole house of cards falls apart. Our hope fails. Simply put, if our hope is grounded in our expectations being met, then we are setting ourselves up, and listen to this church, we are setting ourselves up for preconceived despair. Thus, we need a different vision of hope. One that's simpler, yet bigger than our expectations and our control. One that I believe Advent uniquely provides. And to explain how, or to explore how, I want to focus in on Jesus' birth story from the Gospel of Matthew, which begins with a bang. It's a thriller. That is, it begins with a genealogy, a list of names from Jesus' family tree. Matthew 1.1 begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, after which we get a whole bunch of begets. Matthew just starts listing people, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son and so-and-so, son of so-and-so, starting with this historical figure, Abraham, and going all the way through Israel's history leading up to Jesus' parents. It's thrilling. It's awesome. Talk about an attention getter. That's how you start a story. And though this may seem dull to us, as modern American readers, Matthew, as a first century Israelite, is actually doing something quite profound. You see, he's using this genealogy to retell the entire story of the Hebrew scriptures. So if we wanna go any further, we need to get that story in mind. And y'all, I do this often, it's basically my bit at this point, but it's because context is critical. So we're gonna go through the entire biblical story leading up to Jesus' birth, and y'all, it's going to be fast, so don't even bother taking notes, but three minutes on the clock. You guys ready? Let's go. The Old Testament begins with God making everything good and creating humanity to relationally work alongside him to mirror his character and his ways in his world. But alas, does humanity do good at mirroring God's character and ways in his world? Yes or no? No. no. Humanity rebels against God and sin enters creation. This separation, humanity separates themselves from each other God and their world. And what's the result, good or bad? Bad. We make a mess of the place. And ultimately, the rest of the Old Testament is about God setting out to deal with this sin problem, to rescue humanity and creation from what's gone wrong to end our separation. How? Well, through reshaping humanity back into that original true reflection of his character and ways. First, by calling one individual whose name is what? No, one individual. Abraham? Abra Everyone say, Abraham? He calls this one individual. I'm not gonna ask you guys any more questions. He calls this one individual named Abraham. 
and then Abraham's family, and then from that family, a nation named Israel, an entire people whom he rescues and leads to this promised land where he promises to dwell with them, teach and reshape them into a pocket of renewed humanity, a people who can live as conduits of his character and his purposes in his world, a people that are designed to draw the rest of humanity back towards their creator through how they live, like he does. But do God's people succeed at living into this calling, yes or no? No, their kings lead them astray. They ultimately seek other gods, practice injustice, and pursue war just like the other nations. And Israel starts with the war of this empire called Babylon. And how does that go? Very, very badly, because Babylon is better at this whole war thing than the people of God are. Anyway, it goes horribly. And Israel is conquered and taken into exile. A disastrous moment in Israel's history. And eventually some Israelites return to the promised land with just this prophetic promise from the Old Testament prophets that God will one day save and renew his people through this figure called the Messiah, a king from the line of David who will come to make things right. But aside from that promise, essentially, the Old Testament just ends in this limbo with God's rescue plan seemingly completely off the rails. And for 400 years, Israel goes on to be conquered by a series of empires, including in the first century where they're occupied by who? Romans, thank you, the Roman Empire, under whose oppression God's people are longing for the fulfillment of God's messianic prophecies. And all of that story from Abraham to exile is in this genealogy, in this list of generations of God's people hoping for the renewal through God's promised king. Essentially, Matthew begins just like Star Wars does. It just gets us caught up on the story thus far. So think about what Matthew's done here. He starts his gospel with this is the genealogy of Jesus, the who? The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he retells this entire story in this format. In other words, what Matthew is doing is he's saying, you know that moment, faithful, first century Israelites, you know that moment you've been hoping for. The culmination of God's rescue plan, the Messiah. It's here. Buckle up. I mean, can you imagine being a first century Israelite living under the boot of Rome and reading this text and just, can you imagine how exciting this would be? I want you to try to get in the minds of a first century Israelite real quick. I'm gonna give you guys one more chance to not mess this up. I want you to try to imagine the expectations that, they, that you would have had if you were in their shoes. What expectations of the Messiah would you have if you were in this situation? Hercules, amen, right? He'd be ripped. He'd wield a sword, right? What else? Rich, yeah, rich, powerful. Kings like, like Caesar. I know someone said that earlier. Anything else? One more? Patient. Patient. Ooh. How about George Clooney? <laughs> Just me. He's definitely, right? This is where your mind's at. He's definitely going to be a warrior king arriving in power, status, and splendor to kick Roman butt. And of course, under him, Israel's going to be pulled from the gutter and exalted over these pagans who have been so cruel to us. And of course, under his reign, God's people will never have to suffer again. 
And y'all, all of those are very real expectations that we now know were intertwined with Israel's messianic hope in the first century. So you've got these expectations. Rich, warrior, muscular king, like Hercules. And Matthew says, it's go time with this genealogy. We're ready to go. And then he writes this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Record scratch. What? What? This is what God's rescue story has been building to. A young, poor Jewish woman in the middle of nowhere gets pregnant out of wedlock, after which her fiance kindly decides to dump her quietly rather than exposing her to public shame, which in this time would have been immense. This could have been life-threatening stuff for her. Who expected that as the climax of God's plan? Y'all, it's, yeah, no one. It's strange, right? Who thinks that's strange? It's a very strange story. You can say it. This is church, it's okay. Now, many of us read this story and assume that what it's trying to tell us is just that Jesus is miraculous. But I think that misses the point. You see, there's something very interesting about this story. There are many stories from the Greco-Roman religions and world about God sleeping with human beings and having these demigod babies who then go around and make a mess of the place. But this story is very different. For one, its language has literally zero sexual connotation. In fact, what it's doing is making this very explosive statement that we actually miss in English. You see, in Greek, the words that get translated as genealogy and birth are actually the same Greek word. It's this word called genesis. What word does that sound like in English? Genesis. This is the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Bible trivia, where else is Genesis connected to God creating life where there is previously no life in existence? No. I shouldn't ask you guys questions. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Just one other place. The very first page of the Bible in the first book called Genesis, in which God's story begins with God creating everything, in which we read in the very first verse that God's spirit is hovering over nothingness until he speaks and who knows what he says, let there be light. And there was light. The Bible begins with God's spirit speaking life and light into existence out of a dark emptiness. And now we find that divine process of creation happening all over again. A moment with the uniqueness and the importance of God creating the cosmos but concentrated here within the creation of a single human being. One with a mother, but no earthly father, God made flesh. And if that's not crazy enough, this new Genesis has a name. Verse 20, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their what? Sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And y'all, this is profound. See, this new Genesis story isn't abstract or far off. It's personal, it's embodied, and his name is Jesus. And this is a powerful name. See, because in Hebrew, what Jesus actually is, we have a really terrible language, Jesus. No, no, no. His name in Hebrew is Yehoshua. And it's a name formed from combining the personal name of God, which is Yahweh, and the root for the verb to save, Shua, Yehoshua. So what is this new Genesis's name? His name is Yahweh saves. From what? Sin. The original separation that God's promised to rescue his creation from. And how is he going to do that? By becoming Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, the new human one who will complete God's rescue and bring the separation between humanity and creation and God to an end by becoming God with us. This is the culmination of God's rescue plan. The very hope of God's people come to fruition, light being birthed into our dark world. And yet, does this in any way reflect our human expectations for a king? No. He doesn't arrive in worldly power, wealth, glory, and status. He doesn't even arrive under the standards of purity and religion of his own people and day. No, he arrives quietly as a fragile baby under the care of a poor Middle Eastern mother in the middle of nowhere who would have been called a sinner for birthing him out of wedlock. And he certainly doesn't arrive to crush Israel's enemies. No, apparently Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, arrives to make things right with God's enemies, to be God with them too. This shatters every expectation there was for the Messiah at this time. And y'all, I think I get why, right? Like, hey God, there's a lot of evil and suffering going on in this world. Are you sure that you don't wanna initiate your rescue with some more bravado, a little more complexity, a little bit more, more of a handsome, suave lead for the final act? Again, are you sure you don't want Hercules or George Clooney or a warrior king? because that's the kind of plan that I get when I'm in trouble. That's who I want to come and save me when things have gone off the rails, amen? That's what I'd expect from a king who shows up to get things done, which is what this world needs. They need something to get in here and clean up the place. And yet God doesn't think that's what we or his world needs when it gets down to it. He seems to believe that what we need is a different kind of hope a hope grounded in something outside of our expectations, our ways of thinking, our control, something grounded in something that's transcendent and yet more simple than these little narratives and schemes that we try to hatch for ourselves and our world. And as reflected on why God feels that way, why he goes against our expectations so thoroughly. See, I found myself returning to something that I've shared about before in a sermon and that I always return to during this Christmas season. It's the story of Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which y'all, I literally cannot recommend enough. 
I first heard about this through Tim Mackey and the Bible Project, and this book has just blown my mind. I come back to it every single year. It's because it's profound. You see, Frankel was an Austrian Jewish psychologist who during the Holocaust was taken to the concentration camp in Dachau, where he lost everything, including every member of his family but one sister. I'm talking cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents, all of it. And in this place, what Frankel describes is truly the definition of a living hell. See, in Dachau, people experienced a life's worth of loss and trauma compressed into weeks, months, years, if you're lucky to make it that far. So Frankel, what he did was he started trying to cope. And the only way he knew how to cope was by offering the only gift that he could, by offering counseling to the other inmates of this institution. And in that, what Frankel writes about is how he began to reflect on how people dealt with life in the concentration camps in these different ways. And this ultimately became the obsession and really the focus of his life's work. Because what he found was that there was this critical importance of having a very specific kind of hope if you wanted to make it through to the other side. You see, he found that some people gave up hope entirely, leading them to either give up on life to just waste away or to essentially surrender their humanity, to become beasts who would do anything that they needed to, to survive. Others, he found, tried coping by placing their hope in complex expectations. Essentially, they start retelling to themselves and others these fantasies about how life after Dachau would go back to exactly what it used to be. And this is the wild part. Regardless of which two paths you took on those routes, neither of them worked. Frankel found that both those who embraced hopelessness and those who built their hope on expectations fell into deep apathy or depression, even if they survived the camp. They couldn't let go of the despair that they had become fond of. They couldn't face the horrors that they had committed trying to make it out. Or they simply fell apart because guess what? Life after something like that is never going to be the same. Their expectations failed them. And in each case, their hope died. And Frankel writes these very tragic stories about how that hopelessness and that despair literally derailed these people's lives. It's heartbreaking. But what's always stuck with me was what he discovered in those who were able to survive and recover. You see, he found that they all shared what he came to call a simple a hope grounded in something that couldn't be taken away from them and that in its simplicity could transcend any circumstance. For example, bakers and musicians who set their hope on one simple thing. Not that life would go back to normal, but that one day they'd be able to bake bread again. That one day they'd be able to pick up a guitar and play a chord. People like himself, whose hope was grounded in just helping the next person. That's all he hoped for. I just want to help the next one, the next one, the next one. You see, what he found is this simple vision of hope was neither apathetic nor grounded in complex expectations. It accepted reality, but still found simple, transcendent things to hope for within it. And this was the only hope through all his interviews that he found that could survive the camp. 
People who held on to this hope were the only ones that he interviewed that were able to recover after facing the worst horrors that humanity has to offer. And y'all, that preaches. Because I haven't come close to going through what Viktor Frankl describes. And yet over these past three years, I have fallen into hopelessness at times. I've fallen into despair when my life didn't go as planned. Anybody else? Anyone else go through COVID and watch their plans and their schemes overnight and just feel like you wanted to go to bed for the rest of your life? Am I the only one? Where have y'all felt hopeless in this season? I mean, I'll tell you, I felt deeply hopeless about the nature of politics in this country over the last three years. And even more than that, the Christian engagement in said politics, not offering a different way of life, not offering a different vision of what it means to be a human being, not acting with dignity, but becoming just like the rest of the world and our resentment and our rage. How about y'all? Where have y'all felt hopeless? Self-loathing. Self-loathing. Financial addiction. Yeah, addiction, financial collapse. Anybody else want to have the, the guts? Where have you felt hopeless? Shout it out, y'all. In our marriage. In being a parent in this time. Raising little ones to not be like the brokenness we see in the world. Protecting them from the chaos. Isolation, anybody? Bummer. But me too, me too, y'all. I've seen that pool the worst out of me over this last season, be it apathy or rage. But it's always the same story playing out in every single one. I put my hope and my expectations and my ability to control and every single time it fails me and my hope dies. Y'all, we need a new hope. We need to find the hope that Viktor Frankl identified and that Matthew saw in Jesus' birth that our God was found in the least expected people and places, in the darkest circumstances, amongst the poor, the outcast, the disenfranchised, lonely, confused, hurting sinners, and the broken. That our God came to us to give us the simple hope that if he can be found there, he can be found anywhere. Even right here, no matter where you're at. If in that darkness he can be found speaking light into existence, then he can do that in my life too wherever I may be. The simple hope that our God, no matter who we are, came down to be with us, to save and love us and show us how to be human again in the world that God is in the process of remaking. That's a simple hope. That's a hope that exists beyond myself, that transcends my circumstances, that can take my suffering, my disappointments, my failures, that can take everything and never be taken away from me. That simple hope can be the foundation of my life. And I need that hope this Advent. Is anyone with me? And I don't know where you need it. Like I said, maybe it's, you're in a season of grief, sickness and despair where you've experienced a lifetime of loss and decay condensed into just a few years. Or maybe it's some upheaval where you've experienced your expectations for your family, your finances, your relationship, your career, or your future just turned upside down by a world economy that does not care about you. Or maybe it's in your apathy, resentment, and rage towards the other, the one not like you, where you found yourself just incapable of letting go of that old wound or injustice, and it's making you sick. 
Maybe you're just at rock bottom, sick and tired of being sick and tired of watching the same old stories and addictions and broken patterns just wreak havoc in your life. I don't know where you need this. I don't know what you're going through. But I need you to remember your simple hope, that your God is with you, that he came down to save you, that he speaks light into despair, simply because that's who he is. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.